Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on May the 25th, 2014. Tonight I'll talk about another player, one of the many players, the big players, who profoundly helped the organization which runs the world and who's dead now, who played a massive part, massive part, along with other uh, big players in the global agenda. They all belong to the same global institutions. They networked with each other. They attended the same global meetings to decide the future of of humanity, uh, the future of how to handle and manage billions of people across the world in a global society and under eventually a global government uh, on behalf of the elite that already owned the moneyed system and the the commercial system of the time, and still do, by the way, their descendants do. So you find, if you go back into the the writings, they put out copious writings at one time, when the public were not so aware of what was going on, they were kept in the dark, uh, on purpose, of course, but they did publish a lot of books for their own kind to read, and anybody in the general public who who was into what was really happening, why things were happening, why culture was managed and changing all the time, being directed to the changes, why it was happening, because it's only there you find the answers as to why it's happening. And tonight I'll touch on Arthur Kostler, who wrote The Ghost in the Machine and many other books too. Uh, he was uh, he belonged to the same institutions as his Bertrand Russell, Uh, and many others, Aldous Huxley, and they're all friends with each other, and you'll find that they all belonged to the the intelligence services during World War II, and often afterwards as well. But they definitely all afterwards were into the global agenda, meeting at world meetings, United Nations. They worked with university faculties in the study uh, of behaviorism, for instance, and how to modify the human being to make them complacent, compliant citizenry that would basically be happy uh, as children are kept happy. Don't tell them much what's really happening. Keep them happy, and that's all they'll need, basically, while they can be managed and exploited, too. Uh, And I've touched on many of the big players down through the ages, right up to the present time, in fact. But uh, Kessler was important as well because... He, with a, he had a tremendous ego. They all had tremendous egos, uh, these characters, uh, thinking they were part of the new scientific establishment uh, that helped to run the world and shape the whole future, fashion, culture, even music and so on. They all touched on the same things. So I'll, I'll read a bit of one of his books called The Ghost and the Machine. Now, I've touched on it before in the past. You go into the archive section at cuttingthroughthematrix.com and you can go through the old talks I've given years ago on some of these players. But um, if you don't understand the past, you won't understand the present, because the past is still going on. Many of the agendas to to, do step-by-step cultural changes towards a definite goal have already taken place in our lifetimes. These guys, uh, as I say, many of them are long dead, but uh, it's still going on. Uh, Step-by-step, incrementally, they knew how to do it. And uh, and they have more to come yet. It was still de- devised in the changes, devised in their age as well. So he talks in The Ghost of the Machine on page 333 uh, about uh, even birth control and altering women's behavior as well. I've mentioned this so many times because, you see, biochemistry was to be very, very important 
in the future. And it, it became that way uh, even before I was born and right up to the present, trying their ongoing researching, researches into biochemistry and how it can alter human behavior, not just physical appearance, which it does too, by the way, but uh, human behavior as well. And I've mentioned uh, that uh, Charles Galton Darwin wrote a book, a book called The Next Million Years, where he goes into it too and talks about putting hormones in the food, the water, and various other methods of, of inserting these hormonal changes into society that would affect their behavior, make men less aggressive, and make them behave themselves and be complacent. Uh, or as even Aldous Huxley said, perhaps in, at times when they shouldn't be so complacent and at peace when they're being used, for instance, uh, they, would, they wouldn't mind. Today we have masses of entertainment to keep you uh, just like sucking your lollipop all day long. And people, that's all they do now on their cell phones, etc., they're entertained to death, literally, in a sense. But getting back to the ghost of the machine, Huxley talks, just touches on, at the top of the page, it touches on, uh, after a long chapter on, to alter the, the, the hormonal balance in women and so on. He says, we may be able to prevent the, the demotic apocalypse by interfering with women's estrous cycle. We cannot cure our paranoid disposition by putting additional wiring circuits into our brains. They already were working in Tavistock by doing just that, uh, by putting wire in the brain, and uh, they were literally hardwired uh, to various uh, buttons and so on. But um, he says, uh, but we may be able to achieve a cure, or at least a significant improvement, by directing research into the required channels. Now, what's the cure he's talking about? The cure for what is also important. Well, it's the, it's the wild part in human nature. Uh, we're all basically, we all have so-called animal instincts. Uh, these are primal drives of procreation to keep the species going, etc. Everyone is subject to it, of course. And uh, he talks uh, about the uh, need to control population. Big, big agenda. All of the big players uh, mentioned heavily. Uh, population control because it's, it's always been on their minds it's, it's, uh, it really took on after Darwin came along, he was part of the same agenda to, to replace the old religions and so on with scientific dictatorship you might say or oligarchy uh, Aldous Huxley talks on that too where he said that he and his family members belonged, and Julian Huxley's brother said the same thing, they belonged to the scientific elite. He didn't mean just in chemistry and so on. He meant the behavioral sciences, all of the sciences, to manipulate society, manipulate them, and give the culture which the people would unfortunately follow. That's how easy it is to lead the people, by putting out stars in front of them. They follow what the stars do, uh, and so on. The public have no idea that stars can be completely talentless, because the machinery of making a star through propaganda, massive publicity, is all you'd really need today. It's all you really need. And uh, it's been that way for an awful long time. Talent has, has comes down the ladder, actually. Uh, and why they pick some of the people, it's up to you to decide to make them stars. But you find that uh, he goes into this whole thing, too, of altering the estrus cycle in women by adding certain hormones which would interfere with other main hormones, etc. It would change behavior. It would change uh, even the psychology, you might say, uh, of uh, the subjects as well. Uh, maybe make, even make them more aggressive. Well, we've seen that in women too. 
uh, and men become a lot more passive, a lot of them. But anyway, it says here, mutating into the future. In 1961, these are ongoing studies and meetings that they have, the University of California San Francisco Medical Center organized a symposium of control of the mind. Control of the mind. At the first session, Professor Holger Haydn of Gothenburg University made headlines in the San Francisco Press, although the title of his highly technical paper was called Biochemical Aspects of Brain Activity, was hardly designed to appeal to the popular press. That's how they mislead the public to and, the, and keep the press off their backs by giving it a, a very uh, amorphous title, really, uh, something that's very vague, and people don't turn up. But if they put down control of the mind, it'd be a different story altogether. This is the passage which created the sensation, as quoted below, and the reference to Kessler himself is explained by the fact that I was a participant of the symposium. And this is what came out um, into, it did leak out into some of the press, even though they took precautions, as I say. In considering the problem of control of the mind, the data give rise to the following question. Would it be possible to change the fundamentals of emotion by inducing molecular changes in the biologically active substances in the brain? The RNA, in particular, is the main target for such a speculation. Now, they were already doing massive tests that had been since even the, the early 50s, on all of these things. So uh, they weren't speculating as much as he made out to be that they were. But he says, RNA is the main target for such speculation. Since a molecular change of the RNA may lead to a change in the proteins being formed, one may phrase the question in different words to modify the emphasis. Do the experimental data presented here provide means to modify the mental state by specifically induced chemical changes? Results pointing in that direction have been obtained. And the work was carried out by using a substance called trisano, trisiano uh, aminophrine, prene it's called, aminoprene. And it goes on to say here in the article, Here at our disposal, to be used wisely or unwisely is an increasing array of agents that manipulate human beings. It's now possible to act directly on the individual to modify his behavior instead of, as in the past, indirectly through modification of the environment. Now, modification of the environment has a tremendous impact. You can do that by creating social approval and social disapproval. It's used heavily in universities. They tell you what not to talk about, what's taboo, and they can train the people so easily to turn on a person who just uses a word or asks a question about a certain topic that's completely taboo and off-limits. We're trained all the time by the environment in which you live or work and so on. It's quite easy to institutionalize such taboos throughout society, and it's done heavily today. He goes on to say, this then constitutes a part of what Aldous Huxley has called the final revolution. So here, here's chemical agents which can biologically manipulate human beings, you see. He says, I must comment on the last paragraph in this quotation. Huxley was haunted by the fear that this final revolution brought about by the combined effects of drugs and the mass media, because they wanted to use pharmacology in a big, big way across entire society, they've been pretty well successful, even grabbing the children when they're young, creating diseases that don't exist to do with their mind, and drugging them too. But he says... 
within a generation or so for entire societies, a sort of painless concentration camp of the mind in which people will have lost their liberties and enjoyment of a dictatorship without tears. Now, the dictatorships uh, Huxley was talking about, of course, was the scientific dictatorship that Bertrand Russell vastly promoted, greatly promoted. He was all for this scientific dictatorship, which he said, this is Russell, Russell said, uh, he says a scientific dictatorship would be incredibly uh, cruel because it wouldn't bother with human emotions or pity, etc., etc. Tremendously cruel. I would see people, and he was all for this whole thing anyway. But getting back to the article here, a painless concentration cap of the mind in which people have lost their liberties and the enjoyment of a dictatorship without tears. In other words, the state of affairs described in Brave New World. As an antidote, this is interesting, Huxley advocated the use of mescaline and other psychedelic drugs to guide us along the eightfold path towards cosmic consciousness, mystic enlightenment, and artistic creativity. Now, even though he said, Kester said, he's, he's disagreeing with Huxley on this point of using these drugs, don't get him wrong. You understand, the big agencies that run the world are employed with the think tanks and all the laboratories, etc., controlled studies and behaviorism on populations that don't even know they're being studied, uh, have been going on for an awful long time. And what they'll do at the top, they'll take maybe five or six different ways that they could think could possibly work in modifying people's behavior. And the ones who are all friends at the top in these circles are given massive grants to carry out experiments on the general population to see which ones work. They don't necessarily agree with each other, and they're allowed to say so to each other, but they're still all friends. So on the one hand, you have, you have Kessler with his idea of how it should work, and you have also Huxley with his. Remember, there's a lot of egos involved, as I said before, with these people who are the movers and shakers, and they spearhead investigation into controlling all humans in every possible way. So he disagrees with them on using what became very popular at that time, uh, was, was mescaline, uh, the LSD, things like that, uh, drop out, etc., and, and, and drop in, and blah, blah, blah. All the stuff that came out with the hippie movement, it was all manufactured uh, by associate think tanks and CIA funding too, of course, uh, to, to create the hippie generation, the dropout generation, and so on, which worked awfully well. A lot of folk dropped out of college, universities. Uh, some of them didn't even make it to college. They were already so far gone with their minds being blitzed with LSD uh, that they were out of action for many, many years, some permanently. But they also found out that uh, such a society could not be productive. Uh, uh, because when you're stoned all the time, you, you don't care about going to work. You don't worry about getting to work. You don't worry about anything eventually, as long as you can get lots and lots of drugs. You find the same thing being instituted at the same time, of course, with big pharmacology and the medical associations promoting all of these particular tranquilizers, um, which they could uh, drug the populations too. And they targeted mainly housewives initially, uh, in Britain and now other countries too. I think it, back in the 70s at one time, tranquilizers like Librium and Valium, uh, they, they said that a lot, I think it was 70 odd percent of the women at that time were either had taken it or were being prescribed it. 
uh, for anxiety or depression or whatever. In other words, they felt life, life was passing them by because the cultural blitz through all media at that time was everyone should have a job, have a function, have a career, etc. If you were in the home, uh, you, you were nobody, you were looked down upon, you were a third-class person, uh, and so on. Uh, you should be having excitement, even having affairs. That was heavily promoted too, long before then, of course. It was promoted even back in the late 1800s by H.G. Wells. And, and all through his life afterwards. And uh, so we've been experimenting with it for an awful long time. But he says here in his book, he said he was, he was an admirer of Huxley's uh, personality and work. But in the last years, I profoundly disagreed with him, and the points of disagreement will help clarify the issue. He said in Heaven and Hell, praising the benefits of mescaline, Huxley offered this advice to modern man in search of his soul. Knowing as he does... What are the chemical conditions of transcendental experience? The sparring mystic should turn for technical help to the specialists in pharmacology, in biochemistry, in physiology, and neurology. It's very interesting. It says, now this is precisely what I do not mean by the positive uses of psychopharmacology. In the first place, experimenting with mescaline or with LSD-25 does involve serious risks. But quite apart from this, it's fundamentally wrong and naive to expect that drugs can present the mind with gratis gifts, put into it something which is not already there. Neither mystic insights nor philosophic wisdom nor creative power can be provided by pill or injection. The psychopharmacist cannot add to the faculties of their brain, but he can at best eliminate obstructions and blockages which impede their proper use. Uh, the key to all of this is that uh, the big boys themselves, uh, going along with the Darwinian school, claimed that man had gone wrong somewhere in his evolution. It's interesting they didn't want to change themselves at the top, including all the scientific elite, uh, but uh, they wanted to remain wild men, as Charles Galton Darwin said quite plainly in his book, The Next Million Years because they would be steering and guiding the planet Earth, basically, the culture, everything, uh, productivity, and so on, uh, training the public constantly from generation to generation, updating them for changes. But they themselves would remain wild men since they were the captains of the ship. They could interfere with their own faculties of reasoning, etc. In a crisis situation, they would need those faculties. But the general population, he said would have their the decisions made by the state. All decisions would be made by the state. Hence the, the massive increase in social work departments, etc., etc., etc. They make all your decisions for you. Kessler goes on to say in another uh, page, he says, I'm aware that control of the mind and manipulating human beings have sinister undertones. Who is to control the controls? Manipulate the manipulators. Assuming that we succeed in synthesizing a hormone which acts as a mental stabilizer on the lines indicated, how are we to propagate its global use to induce the beneficial mutation? Are we to ram it down people's throats or put it into the tap water? The answer seems obvious. No legislation. This is important because it ties in with your addiction to internet, pornography, uh, food, uh, all kinds of addictions, you might call them addictions if you want to, but really there's something that makes people feel pleasant. 
in an era of unpleasant happenings and so on. But since the answer seems obvious, no legislation, no compulsory measures were needed to persuade the Greeks and Romans to partake of the juice of the grape that gives joy and oblivion. Sleeping pills, pet pills, tranquilizers have, for better or worse, spread across the world with a minimum of publicity or official encouragement. It wasn't really done officially through parliaments because parliaments are low in the totem pole, you understand. It was done by the agencies assigned by parliaments to do all this kind of stuff and the, and the special branches of secret services and so on. They spread, spread because people liked their effects and even accepted unpleasant or harmful after effects. not quite true because I've gone into the history of the drug introduction into society uh, and how bags of LSD were thrown over university walls across Britain and other countries too to get it all started. And many, many years afterwards, they can always tell you after the event because it's achieved their effect, uh, we find that top promoters of the use of LSD, for instance, um, like, like Timothy Leary, were actually on the payroll of the CIA. He traveled across the, the world's universities promoting, encouraging this fantastic use of LSD. We also had the big uh, culture creators for the, for the, for the rock bands, etc., uh, heavily promoting the use of drugs through music and, and pop rock. The revolution, supposedly, for the young who really did believe it was their revolution, because, and they were managed all of the way in every single iota of it. They were completely managed. They had no idea that the ideas, even the songs often, were done by much, much older people in a completely different class than they'd ever, ever see. But it said here, it says here, basically people would like something, right? Now, you'll like a lot of things that will decrease misery, for instance, uh, in a time of tremendous hardship. It's interesting, too, that in the Soviet Union, uh, often outside Moscow, you, you'd have lineups and queues for, for food. When it was hard at times, bad harvest or whatever, but you never had problems getting vodka, cheap, cheap vodka. Then the big boys understand this. Don't forget the Soviet Union was part of the big experiment, too, and well-funded by the West. So... They've always used various kind of drugs to pacify the public in times of incredible hardships and financial troubles, etc., etc. But uh, it says here, they've spread across because people like their effect, the drugs and so on, and even accepted unpleasant or harmful after effects. A mental stabilizer would produce neither euphoria, nor sleep, nor masculine visions, nor cabbage-like equanimity. It would, in fact, have no noticeable specific effect except in promoting cerebral coordination and harmonizing thought and emotion. In other words, restore the integrity of the split hierarchy. Its use would spread because people like feeling healthy rather than unhealthy in body or mind. It would spread as vaccination has spread and contraception has spread, not by coercion, but by enlightened self-interest. And, and, of course, this is going into behaviorism and those con- who control behavior because you, think, you might think it's your self-interest, but you're generally wrong in all the things they promote. What they mean, too, by a stabilizer is to, to subjugate, basically, your wild, your natural survival instincts into a, a cooperative, uh, uh, placid society 
for, for the general public. That's what he means by this, too. These guys, remember, we speak with, speak with this, the American Indians, you see, forked tongues. One for their own group and one for the outer group, the esoteric and the exoteric and combined. The first noticeable result would perhaps be a sudden drop in the crime and suicide rate in certain regions and social groups where the pill would become fashionable, the contraceptive pill. From here on, the, the developments are as unpredictable as the consequences of James Watts or Pasteur's discoveries had been. Some Swiss canton might decide, after a public referendum, to add a new substance to the chlorine in the water supply. Well, we've got stacks of things. It's not just uh, fluoride. Fluoride's a big one to, to, that it does affect stabilization uh, because it makes you pretty well dumb, actually, if you take too much of it. And it shouldn't be there at all. And it's used widely, and its studies have constantly gone on for, for the upper elite, which are never published for you to read. But it's all, but we can see the, the fallout in society too. Anyway, it says for a trial period, they could use another drug along with chlorine, and other countries might follow their example. You see, and even says there might even uh, be international fashions created amongst for the young, etc., etc. But it says here on another page. Um, but we are a mentally sick race. Mentally sick, he calls the public mentally sick. And as such, deaf to persuasion. It's been tried from the age of the prophets to Albert Schweitzer, and the results have been, as Swift said, that we have just enough religion to make us uh, hate, but not enough love to love each other. That applies to all religions, theistic or secular, who are taught by Moses or Marx or Matsu Tung, and Swift's anguish cry not die here in a rage like a poisoned rat in a hole, has acquired an urgency as never before. He goes on to say that nature has let us down. God seems to have left the receiver off the hook, and time is running out. To hope for salvation to be synthesized in a laboratory may seem materialistic, crankish, or naive, but to tell the truth, there is a Jungian twist to it, Carl Jung. It says, for it reflects the ancient alchemist's dream to concoct the elixir uh, vitae. What we expect from it, however, is not eternal life, nor the transformation of base metals into gold, but the transformations of homo maniacus into homo sapiens. When man decides to take his fate into his own hands, that possibility will be within reach. In other words, total tranquilization and various methods, all combined, behavioristic methods, etc., and persuasion and, and uh, neuroscientific prompting, as is say, uh, Pavlovian responses and conditioning, they're all being used against you and have been your whole life long, all from uh, early school all the way through education and into your workplace, because the media gives you it in so many different ways. They tell you who to hate, who is wrong by saying something. They tell you, tell you, tell you, and it sinks into you. If you mention certain things and question certain things, you're a bad person. Never discount the effects that you get through indoctrination, through fiction. Never discount it because it's incredibly effective. When you identify with the characters in a movie or whatever it happens to be, then you or drama, you will actually start to emulate what the, what is said. Children especially, are, they mimic what they hear and see, even the cuss words, etc. That's why Hollywood put them in a long time ago. Remember, the Frankfurt School, for instance, were dedicated to destroying completely, completely 
the, the, the culture of the West, right down to promoting all modern arts, which are basically dehumanizing, uh, they're depressing to look at. All beauty was to be destroyed. All beauty. And that's part of it too. So, no, the, 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 And then again, when the experts keep telling this is a great painting, you're supposed to parrot it and say so. The ones who are easy, the, the real followers, will say the same thing. They want to be in the group that says it's fantastic. You find the same in music. You don't really have to sell all the records to get a number one hit. What you do, first of all, is promote it and say it is number one by the machinery that creates the whole industry. And you'll believe it and you won't buy the record just to be in with everybody else. So I've got that, so I'm, I'm, I'm cool, you see. Uh, so all of these things work awfully well. Never discount persuasion by, by uh, your, your ability or your, 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 your instinct to follow what you think are people... Uh, or even hero figures, you might say, hero figures, and role models. So never discount fiction, because that's when you really are wide open to suggestion. When they promote something and they tell you, this is a bad thing to say or think or even discuss. And they'll make the character who does say those things or discuss them the most nastiest character of all, you see. And that's how you, your behavior is modified, when you don't question everything. If you can't question everything, you'll never get to truth, obviously. But you see, the big boys don't believe that you have the capacity to handle truth. You're too primitive and emotional when you get truth. That's what they say. Well, a fantastic way for an elitist group to criticize you for finding out what's really going on. And hopefully to silence you in the process. None of these authors have self-doubt whatsoever as to their particular uh, primitive uh, and base behavior. And some of them were the most foulest of people privately you could possibly ever meet. And still are. Very arrogant. Completely elitist. And they have no problems discussing amongst themselves things which they make taboo for you to discuss. One of the big manipulators of the human mind and psychology who worked for private industry, the private foundations, the Rockefellers, many others, and helped to persuade the public to do certain things or buy certain things and modify their behavior in the process was Edward Bernays. I've gone through his history before, and if you go into the archive section at cuttingthroughthemidies.com, you'll find uh, various talks I've given on Bernays and those who came after him. And also a bit of insight into who he was, because he didn't just uh, appear out of nowhere as uh, uh, the pioneer, as he's called, of marketing. Uh, this was going on for a long, long time before Bernays, amongst a select group who studied uh, the peoples and countries to merchandise to them and study their behavior and also observe the modifications that even their fashions that they, they, they would implement to countries, how it would, behave, it would modify the behavior of the people and the public, etc., etc. But there's a book called uh, The Fluoride Deception. It's well worth reading. And uh, Christopher Bryson is the author. Uh, he he does an awfully good book on fluoride. Now, fluoride, you'll find, uh, getting back to the last uh, book I touched on with Arthur Kessler, 
Fluoride is, was one of those uh, agencies, those uh, combination of chemicals, basically, they put into the, the water supply. And it has nothing to do, as far as I'm concerned, with the studies I've done to helping make, give you better teeth. In fact, it makes your bones brittle. And there's many other side effects physically, but there's also the mental uh, stage as well. Harvard University did one of the more recent studies on fluoride, and, and they, they claimed that it lowered your IQ points at least 7%. Uh, so it also alters the way that you behave to an extent, too. You're not so... Uh, again, the wild instincts, the, the, the parts that keep you alive, your instinctive drives are certainly dulled, so it works awfully well. But uh, there's a chapter in this particular book, The Fluoride Deception, where the author goes in to engineering consent. The, the term used by Bernays, who didn't just teach it to the marketing companies and so on, and to the big uh, industrialists of the time to sell their products. He is given credit, of course, Bernays, that is, for altering the, the behavior of Americans uh, and, and giving them the consumer society. Uh, but he was involved in a much more than that. Uh, behavior modification was one of them. He uh, belonged to some very interesting groups indeed. They were on the go for many centuries. But uh, he also worked for the, what we think of as the Marxist organizations, he was behind big movements of women's liberation in America early on. And like all of them, of course, they'll personally benefit as they change the behavior of the public because he worked for massive tobacco companies, the largest in the world at that time. And he made it sexy for women to smoke by getting uh, basically uh, more elitist uh, females that were known in society, society women, young women, and making, making cigarette smoking sexy and rebellious, etc., etc. So he did that. He did the same thing with drinks, uh, for alcohol, uh, and so on and so on. But he also altered the, the fashion industry too, uh, to an extent as well. He even had the U.S. involved with wars in Latin America when the big corporations which ran uh, were U.S.-based that ran Latin America. In fact, I think Rockefellers was one of them with the United Fruit Company. He had them go in there and overthrow the, the democratically elected president, claiming he was a communist because uh, he wanted a fair pay. All the produce was going out of the country. The people were getting paid peanuts, of course, for wages, uh, for massive profits. And he wanted to change that, this, this particular elected uh, president. And they overthrew him uh, under the guise of communism. So even had the U.S. Army literally go to war, and of course the taxpayers paid for all. And during the war, that particular war, for, for about a year in advance, he set up a like the Path News Company, very similar to Path News, a version which really played on communism, communism, communism uh, in Latin America in order to prepare the public to be all for it, not complain when the U.S. invaded this particular little country. Anyway... And then at the end of all, of course, the, the, the fruit company was back in business uh, and paying peanuts once more to their, to their workers. But anyway, Bernays, as I say, he, uh, he talked about engineering consent amongst the population. You think, and I've mentioned it so many times, that you think are coming to your own decisions. And you're not. In most areas, in fact, you're not. I used to study the techniques on television when I was young. Uh, that were used on the public. And I realized that after a prime minister or a president gave a speech, he always had two experts, always experts, came on afterwards to explain what the prime minister or president had just said. 
and uh, one would be uh, would give a different opinion than the other, and that's a dialectical approach to things, you see. You're given this or that opinion. They don't really care which one you, you take because both of them will lead you up the garden path and mislead you as well. But for those in the know, if you're listening to them, them making speeches, everything that they say is very legalistic. When the actual president or prime minister says it, it's legalistic. And they're making massive decisions. It's like what George Bush Jr. said, is giving you the new freedom. And no expert questioned that on your behalf, you see. The new freedom. What does he mean by the new freedom as opposed to the old freedom? Well, he's given you a, a, a new deal. I like to call it these terms like new deal. Here's the new freedom. And the new freedom, as it was turned out, is basically a police state inside all Western countries, some worse than others at the moment. But uh, the U.S. takes the lead in it at the moment, along with uh, part of, of England too. So uh, <laughs> listen very carefully to that. Don't listen to the experts afterwards reinterpreting things. Listen to what the person says. Legalistic terms said by the top honcho, supposedly, which has legalistic value, and something's going to get signed into law. Awfully important. You acquiesce to this consent. You consent to what you hear by the speeches by saying nothing. You say nothing, and therefore it all becomes law quite quickly without any fuss, because the public generally don't know what it really means. They don't think deeply. They expect and wait for the media to give them their opinions on it. Their reasoning is done by the media. That's what Brzezinski said in one of his books. They trained the public so well. Before the 1950s, for instance, even before that, the public were very skeptical of media. They knew the barons owned it, who worked for the establishment. They knew what they were getting fed was for political purposes on behalf of the establishment, never for the public. And they knew they were being conned and lied to. Uh, and they said as much, too, in their own little low-level publications. But today, very few folk question of the official media. In fact, they've trained the public through approval and social disapproval, etc., to bypass those people, ignore those people who are then called conspiracy nut, conspiracy crazies, the nutters, because they have these strange opinions on things. Why don't you be like the uniform opinion that we give you? That's how it really, that's what it really means. And to muddy the water, they give you enough cranks that they'll promote there, promote out there for you to follow, that some people will follow, put it that way. Uh, they're, they're utterly crazy. Uh, it's, it's crazy like a fox. So they're, they're put out there on purpose to, to make uh, true information the facts be ridiculed by lumping it in with all kinds of wacko things. It works awfully well, too. Everything out there is dangerous until you think for yourself. But Bernays, as I say, talked about engineering consent, and he worked for all, oh, many, many presidents from the early 1900s onwards, by the way. He lived to a very ripe old age. And the author in uh, The Flory Deception talks about meeting him to write the book on The Flory Deception, and by the way, I don't get paid a penny uh, for mentioning these books at all. 
uh, so it's not it's not me promoting something because uh, uh, I'm getting paid for anything. But he does talk about Bernays, which is interesting, and he talks about meeting him and how the old man at that time, well in his nineties, and uh, actually he met him on his hundredth birthday. You find the most evil people live an awful long time because they don't worry about things. But uh, he said here that. Uh, this guy, to paraphrase it, he said that um, he was there at the, the, the Treaty of Versailles being, being signed. Uh, he's got photographs all over the place, his own, own house at that time, with, with, with Henry Ford, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Edison, Eisenhower, Truman. He worked with presidents his whole life long to influence public behavior and opinion. And he worked with uh, the top moguls, as I say, uh, within the tobacco industries, uh, manu- car manufacturing industries, etc., etc., and and so on. Um, but he also had people in the arts, the general arts. He understood perfectly well that, that the whole creation of the arts, that's music, entertainment of all kinds, uh, paintings, dancing, uh, fashion, comes into it, by the way. Uh, so he knew all the top players for, for all these things, too. He helped to guide it all as well for the culture they wanted to create. And uh, he, even during World War II, he worked for the U.S. government, along with the CIA, in the CIA actually, uh, to alter opinions within the country of the U.S. and outside the U.S. Britain was doing the same thing, of course. We know that too, because George Orwell, or Blair, as his name was, was working on the BBC at the time in the propaganda departments, helping stabilize the news and keeping everybody uh, in the right mode for war and putting up with suffering and, and almost starvation in some parts with incredible rationing. But anyway, Bernays was, was employed also to add fluoride to water. That was, that was a part of it. This ties in, as I say, with the previous uh, Arthur Kessler book I just mentioned uh, about how to what do you do when you put the chemicals in the water, add it to the chlorine that was already there, etc., and so on. And Bernays admitted doing that too. And how he did it was, was by a technique he already understood very well to get any idea accepted. And this is it's basically, you put on experts. You put experts in front of the public through magazines, uh, television, whatever it happens to be, radio, uh, you get and you pay the experts, top dentists, big money, to say it's fantastic. In other words, you buy them off. It's very, very simple. They buy them off. Bernays was famous for putting up uh, in the early days of pharmacology. Uh, he, he famous for setting up little offices. He'd advise her clients set up an office uh, somewhere. Get one secretary in it. She'll answer the phone calls, send out occasional letter. Get a few top doctors' uh, names on it. And the public will believe it. That's your PR office, basically. And Bernays basically said if doctors are for something, the public uh, are, are, are willing to accept it. And uh, he understood it perfectly well. The public follow because they can't think for themselves. That's how all advertising does work. It sells you a fantasy. It's nothing to do with reality. I still always wonder, uh, the Cara ads on television always showed you one car, the, the car they were selling, uh, flying along, along some road with, with nobody else on it, with hills in the background and fields and so on, all happy, 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 but told you nothing about the car, the engine, 
guarantees, uh, the workmanship, nothing at all. You're sold a fantasy. But um, he also mentions this author here that Bernays used the medical sympathy to do it, to, to boost a play that he helped produce. Now, why was a guy like that helping produce plays? Why? You see, he was into the culture creation business as his relatives were before him. He understood it. And the play was about, it was called Damaged Goods. And Damaged Goods was about really uh, venereal disease, which had changed to sexually transmitted disease. And now, because we're in a politically correct world, it's a social disease. <laughs> you see. But um, he got around the censorship of that era, because there was a lot of censorship back then, because people knew the groups behind cultural shifts at that time, especially uh, churches, mainly at that time the Catholic Church. They were watching the movements of certain peoples and what they're promoting to destroy their culture. They understood it back then, and they wrote a lot on it, in fact. Uh, So you can't find those articles, a lot of them today, unless you've got the old stuff. But anyway, he basically got around it by... He created what was called a sociological committee. And on the committee had doctors and well-known uh, New Yorkers who talked about the benefits of the sex education and to endorse the play. Now remember, they always had, the elite have always had, and it's been mounting more, more and more and more, the idea of population control. That was one of it, so that, that was in there too, you see, to promote the whole idea of, of uh, the fallout of casual sex, which they were promoting. Because casual sex would ensure uh, fewer folk got married. At the same time, they're promoting careers for women as well. It all ties in together, you understand. It wasn't all by chance that different things developed at the same time. It was all tied together and directed and produced and, and promulgated amongst the public by experts, experts on advertising and behaviorism. And, of course, we find, too, that Bernays was well aware of behavior of the public and how he had to alter uh, behavior by using behaviorists, early behaviorists in the social sciences. Uh, And all the way through his lifetime, he used them for promoting all kinds of things to the general population. You'll find, too, if you really delve into him, you'll find his involvement in the music industry and promoting the whole 60s era as well. Drugs, rock and roll, free love, etc. All that. But anyway, as I say, he's a very, very uh, prominent person. You should really do your own digging into it and see. And see, there's so much, as I say, on Bernays. It's just incredible. So much was kept from the public. It wasn't just him himself. There was a whole coterie around him of similar people, very similar people, in fact, uh, who understood this and were working with them on a large scale, well-funded. These guys did not work for peanuts. Not at all. Bernays said, those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society, that's the persuasion industry, constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. Our minds are molded, our tastes are formed. I've told you about that before, your tastes and everything. Our ideas suggested by largely men we have never heard of.
Now, the author of this book on fluoride, fluoride in Bernays, basically, and Bernays is at least one part of, of one chapter in the book, because it's such a major player in getting it promoted, you see, for the public acceptance and having it passed by law into uh, local authorities into uh, using the stuff on the general population. But it tells you that the people who were there, uh, who were the protesters against it, all the different organizations, prominent doctors and dentists and uh, surgeons, everything, uh, very good. And then he goes into the opposition to it uh, and so on uh, as well. And uh, he talks about the the top dogs that were involved in pushing it. And it's no coincidence, in fact, you find that uh, Detlev Bronk or the Rockefeller Foundation was there too because they really ran and still do the American Medical Association, everything to do with medicine. And it's awfully lucrative for them at the same time. Everything the Rockefellers touch, by the way, and all their philanthropy across the world is also benefits their own private investments and interests, including Africa. I mean, they were into uh, the Congo and different countries in Africa and Nigeria many, many, many moons ago to exploit the resources under the guise of giving them work, etc., and helping improve their standard of living. Anyway, during the campaign for fluoride, uh, Bernays did let some things out the bag, and uh, at the time nobody knew, but all letters he wrote to, thing, to other people involved are very telling. He said in one letter, he says, All this intrigues me no end. And he, he was writing actually at the time to Dr. Baumgartner, and to do with fluoridation, he says, Because it represents a challenging situation deeply related to the public's interest, which may be solved by the engineering of consent. And he, what he was referring to was an essay that Bernays had written before on techniques of media manipulation and public relations to get the public to alter their behavior or buy something or do something, whatever it happened to be. So he goes into the techniques of what to do to promote consent for fluoride amongst the general population, getting top people at uh, NBC, CBS, etc., cetera, uh, debating it and so on and again present what appears to be two sides. And actually, he, he referred to it this way too, using a dialectical process. Bernays, he says, it's just like presenting two sides for anti-Catholicism or anti-Semitism. And this is, uh, uh, this is uh, what you should really do is bring people on to act in a specific way, but rather generically, he said. And uh, it's a technique that's used in, in persuasion on media that gets the public to go along with it by the way it is presented to them. Very interesting indeed. But uh, they got it through, of course, uh, using mass persuasive techniques. I'm sure a lot of payoffs went on behind the scenes because it was just too important to get fluoride out to the general public to dumb us down because complacent, etc., etc., etc. More manageable, you might say. Now, most of you probably know that what they put in your drinking water is actually a waste product from the creation of, of aluminum and so on and various other processes and processes used for the atomic industry. That's why they pushed it, that all this waste material uh, at the end of World War II, etc. And up to the present time, how do you get rid of all of this stuff? Well, the big boys are famous for getting you to either eat it or drink it. Even your beer contains more chemicals than anything that's natural to make it brew faster. 
uh, so they can get it bottled quickly and out to you and canned and so on. So that's how uh, you, you, everything is done through promotion and, and stuff is often very, very lethal out there. But um, you find that they knew what fluoride did an awful long time ago, uh, an awful, awful long time ago, in fact. But in the 1940s, uh, they had disasters around certain chemical plants and uh, there was the, called the Donora disaster was one of them. You find that it was poisoning the air, all, all the stuff going into the air from fluoride and so on. as an offshoot of it all. And there was a mass investigation of it, and uh, the legal responsibility for many deaths was put right on the, the smelters. Uh, you find all around all smelters actually get the similar problems. Sudbury up here, not far from me, is one of them too. But... Um, they found different ways to, to get rid of all of the waste products, and that was one of them too. But uh, you find that during the, the process of creation for, for uranium, vast amounts of fluoride gas were needed by the Atomic Energy Commission for uh, enrichment uh, of, of uranium at factories uh, and so on too. So uh, again, there's, there's a lot of uses they have for this, and how, hence the rise of it and the excess of it too. How do you get rid of it too, the excess of it? But um, it's just astonishing, as I say, to find out how much how much was involved with fluoride and the movement to get it into your water supply, all contained in this book here, The Fluoride Deception. As I say, uh, it's a good book. Uh, you should... Uh, Maybe read it if you, if you can, get a copy, and go through it for yourselves, because there's so much packed with information in the history of fluoride, it's really something else. You can also read about how fluoride was well known because of the factory uh, fallout around the areas of the factories that produced uh, stuff for the atomic uh, industry. Uh, and even machinery and so on, making machinery for big industry. Uh, had this, this stuff spewing out of their furnaces and how it poisoned uh, large segments of the population with the fallout around these big, big uh, plants. And uh, you'll find that uh, they knew it affected the central nervous system. One of its main effects is in the central nervous system, which goes all the way to your brain, of, co- of course, which they already knew. But uh, it was put down as an essential for national security, the production of all of this too, and aluminum, vastly increased the production of iron, steel, and all these things by the the different uh, uh, metallic uh, compounds they could use in the handling of the molten steels, etc., especially aluminum. So it's quite fascinating to see how much importance was placed on that. But they did know what it did to the human brain all along, of course, which ties in with the other groups that always... The, the very groups that say, let's, we cannot let a, a good crisis go to waste, uh, they, they will uh, use whatever they can if it fits in with their agenda, and dumbing down the population is certainly a big, big part of it, uh, and, and still going on across the, the world today, and still big battles raging when folk catch on to it and demand to be removed, but it doesn't really matter, because... Uh, the big boys generally always get their way. If, if they can't do it legally, they'll, they'll bypass it and get it in some other way and call it a different name or a different compound or whatever. That's the world we really live in, you understand. That's how it really, really does work. I always like George Orwell's comment, his little statement, that the proles don't count, meaning the general population. We don't count 
and anything. We're giving our front groups to their ma- manage us when we protest things. They get nowhere, of course. We're giving all of them rather than get one side up yourself. Even if, if you do, it'll be infiltrated before you know it. So there's a constant war, and I mean a total war, going on on the general public all the time. It's been awfully successful, awfully successful right up to this present time with all of the different sciences involved uh, and behaviorism, etc., etc. And uh, it's been going on for an awful long time. Tremendous it is, and it's, it's antiquity is tremendously old, uh, and it's still going on today. But I keep say, stressing that big, powerful foundations and the big moguls behind them, the families behind them, are still involved in your politics, managing all of that, your geopolitics across the world for their own businesses, using your armies, etc., all heavily working today on the same agenda. Being the elite, they have the right to rule the world and shape it in their fashion, their likeness, to suit themselves. But you will never, ever, ever be allowed to graduate up to their level because they do not believe in competition. That was a famous statement put out by uh, the old man Rockefeller, John Rockefeller, who said that competition is a sin. And they really mean it when they give you free trade and all the rest of it is to eliminate competition and to let their own front CEOs and I mean front CEOs of their front organizations, uh, take over all of commerce across the world. And economic power brings political power and legalistic power as well. That's how we're really governed, I should say. Now, there's way too much, as I say, to go into all of this. Uh, you, you can do all your own research. There's stacks of information out there. Go into all the university studies that back up the ill side effects of fluoride and many other things too. Uh, it's not that long ago that the same big boys pushed for putting uh, other medications in the water. These are medications, these are drugs, remember, because they're given a different name and they don't sell it across the, the pharmacy uh, as a drug. It's still a drug. These are all drugs, chemical compounds or drugs. And you can mix them together say in a vat or even a water supply, and you come out with a different drug, the one that you plant when you combine them all together. That's how you make drugs, you combine things. But they won't, they won't tell you they're combining things. Oh, we're only putting this one in here, and over there they're putting that one in there, but combine the two together, and you've got a new drug which is psychoactive or whoever it happens to be. Or a sterilant, you can sterilize you. So that's the world we live in, and... Uh, to understand it all, you have to do an awful lot of research. Don't just uh, parrot what other, other people say. Be very careful who you do want to parrot as well, I should say, because I really mean it. It's a war out there. And the big boys always put their strategists in place to be the champions and the leaders of all wars and all sides. From Hamish Marcel to Ontario, Canada, it's good night. May your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>